think it's great. I want to be compost. That's my goal in life is to be compost. Welcome to episode 19 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. You know, we didn't really talk about who you are, Rory. I know. <laughs> it's just weird that I'm just kind of here now. A, a random person has <laughs> showed up in our podcast. We love Rory. You guys can give me a grand introduction. Rory was the speaker at our event on uh, basic income, or as we like to call it, freedom dividends. But you were also my very good friend from college. It's true. And <laughs> Don't I'm, deny it. I'm happy to be here and uh, to contribute what I can to a diverse range of topics that I know the Humanist Association covers. So are you a humanist, Rory? I do my best to be. That's good. Consider myself to be, yes. Okay. Qualifications accepted. <laughs> Check. So today we're recapping on the talk that occurred in our last humanist meeting. And Amber Cantell from Reforest London came in to give us a talk about how climate change is impacting our forests and uh, what it could mean for us and what it might mean in terms of uh, mitigation of climate change by either doing assistant migration of uh, forests. And she had some bad news for us. And we're, there's only a few things we can try to do to help reduce the impact of climate change, but it seems like we're on a pretty dark path. Dark timeline, I'm telling you. <laughs> it is my accepted theory. I have no science behind the fact that we have alternate timelines, but I believe we are in the darkest one. And I think that maybe gives me hope because there is somewhere out there that has a better world and we are not in it. <laughs> we can try our best, but basically yeah. to summarize the uh, International Governmental Panel on Climate Change uh, that consists of over a thousand scientists, uh, has forecasted rise of two to five degrees Celsius in the next century. And this will impact a lot of things, like we would anticipate more precipitation in some areas and water scarcity in other regions. So we expect more droughts, more heat waves, more flooding as well. So, you know, recently there's been a lot of environmental impact in the U.S. and Washington State where they have a lot of drought situations right now where basically the snowfall has reduced by over 50%, which means they're going to get less, uh, less water for this year. And then in terms of the middle of the U.S., we have a lot of hurricanes, hail, uh, that's causing a lot of damage and death as well. So we can see you know, the various impacts that are happening right now in our world. So in terms of what we can do, I, I don't know, if, is there anything that we could possibly do or should we just listen to all the claims that this is all a hoax and this is a huge conspiracy by the leftists? I, uh, I did a little bit of research into some of the climate change denier perspective just to uh, give us some insight into where they're coming from and how we might be able to communicate with them effectively. So just at a very basic level, I, I see a lot of traditionalist and kind of a, a romantic perception of the past. And In the past, there wasn't as much talk of climate change and talk of needing to alter our behaviors to deal with climate change. Make the world great again? romanticizing the past yes <laughs> looking backward as opposed to forward i see a lot of that in the climate denier rhetoric there's also the uh the point in this they have a leg to stand on in saying that there will be a an economic cost to trying to reduce emissions to the levels that we need them to be to effectively combat climate change preserve good environment for ourselves and going along with that there's plenty of political and individual figures who just want to free ride on the efforts of other people who are addressing climate change to just gain a competitive advantage for themselves 
But if we dig deep into the conspiracy side, which may or may not be more fun when it comes to this topic, well, then you'll see plenty of outright deniers who just say that climate change either isn't happening or isn't man-made, that we have no power to control what the sun is doing to the climate. Is there any talking to those people? Like, really, I feel like they're so ingrained in their conspiracies that there's just no talking to them. There's no convincing them. We can throw all the facts we have at them, but... There's no convincing them that climate change is real. It could be like they will likely be the last ones on the boat to join us in trying to save the environment. On the literal boat that we are building our ark. <laughs> on the ark, <laughs> perhaps. But uh, I, I would imagine you'll find even a few of the outright deniers looking to see what they can do as soon as climate change starts directly impacting their lives. A wildfire touches down and they're actually able to attribute that to climate change effective, then they might switch gears. Aren't some of these deniers just thinking that the, you know, the planet naturally changes in terms of temperature over time? We have the ice age and then other times during uh, the history of the earth, the weather was warmer as well. They're just going to assume this is just a natural phenomenon and it's definitely not man-made. Definitely. And it all stems back to looking at what they do as an individual and they're just they're not seeing that the collective impact that all of humanity is having actually is a global force and needs to be treated as such but when they look at their small individual impact you know maybe they recycle maybe they don't maybe they drive to work maybe they take a bus to work and they don't feel like there's any more that they should reasonably be expected to be doing. So what type of conspiracies are out there? Well, one of the uh, juicier ones is actually something coined Climate Gate. And this stems back to a problem of how we bring the topic up in terms of both scientific and popular media. So Climate Gate was a, an email scandal where some climate scientists from the Climate Research Unit at the 2009 UN Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen, their emails were leaked or hacked or something or other. And these scientists, they were having a back and forth about how to bring up the topic in a way that would inspire change, proactive change. But to a climate denier, what that looks like is scientists were essentially cooking the books in the opinion of the people who were able to hack and obtain these emails where they were discussing how to effectively bring climate change up as a topic and inspire people to action. And that really highlights the big problem of how we bring climate change up in a way that isn't alienating. Yeah, it's unusual that people seem to think scientists are trying to conspire to a certain outcome. I mean, scientists naturally kind of follow the data, and whenever you publish a paper, there are definitely, you know, a hundred other scientists that are trying to do figure out whether you're right or not. And a lot of scientists have a lot of egos in terms of trying to make sure that they are seen in, in the academic world as the leader. So everyone's trying to make sure they can prove a certain hypothesis or support a hypothesis. So it would be unusual for 99% of scientists to all just follow a single conspiracy to try to deceive the entire world. And why do we think that is? Do you think it's like lack of understanding about the scientific method? Or do you think it's more about expecting the worst from people? Or do they think that scientists have an agenda? Well, if it were an agenda, and it actually has been connected to this by certain conspiracies that I'm also aware of, they bring it back to an economic agenda, saying that this is purposefully 
pushing down coal, gas, fossil fuels, so as to elevate green sources of energy and green products and just essentially force people to invest in the economy where we or the scientific community wants to happen and stealing their autonomy, free libertarian society. But they don't get money really from, I guess, do they get money from corporations? They, they do in a way. Research can be funded by corporations. But if you logically kind of think through this, right, who makes the most money, renewables or the oil and gas industry? In theory, there's enough incentives out there to disprove the concept of climate change. But that is not what the science is saying, because it turns out most scientists will publish the truth. And they're not making, they're not going to make up results, no matter how much money the fossil fuel industry pumps into research, right? And it's funny because politicians get funded by interest groups all the time. And yet we don't see it, but we innately trust our, well, I don't know if we do innately trust our politicians, but we trust them to an extent, right? Like we, we think that they're, they're out for good. I feel like people either really like conspiracy, like conspiracy theories and really jump on board it because they want to appear, I don't know, smarter than other scientists or want to show that they know something that Dug other deep, people do. That yeah, they that uncovered a hidden truth. Exactly. They've, they've done their research and they found something that people are hiding and they want to just spread the truth. They maybe feel like they've been wronged somewhere in life, like maybe in their job or something like that. And they feel like everyone's out to get them. So they might as well uncover these truths that they know of and, and spread these lies. Well, what they think is true. In terms of their politicians interacting with the citizenry, they feel like they've been duped before. And so to the extent that they feel these scientists are just bandwagoning for a certain political agenda, of course they're going to be skeptical, and of course they're going to take some convincing to get to where they need to be. Yeah, yeah I wonder if the percentage of these conspiracy uh, supporters are in the U.S., for example, versus other parts of the world. I think there's perhaps a culture of distrust and potentially in the U.S. uh, politics versus other countries who really jump on the bandwagon when anyone talks about, you know, what the science says. So I'm wondering if there's potentially a cultural difference as well. Could very well be. And the other thing, we like to talk about how the scientific community has essentially reached consensus with regard to climate change and even humans impacting climate change. But if you go from the denier perspective, they'll just see that consensus as proof that the scientific community is simply unwilling to publish or embrace results from the dissenter community. So there really is a a frail argument in every angle that you could possibly approach this just to pure science. It might have to be attacked through some form of culture, some form of cultural approach. I don't know that there is like a cultural thing. I or cultural divide. Like we think about the rise of populism in the world and it's happening everywhere. It's happened in France, it's happened in Britain, it's happened everywhere. So I feel like this is part of the rise of populism, distrusting the government that's in place and trusting this new conservative agenda. This is why democracy doesn't work. (laughs) What have we said before about democracy? I can't remember. (laughs) We'll have another podcast episode on that. In terms of broad strokes, I think I'm pretty well through my conspiracy nuts and where the deniers are coming from. Would you like to hear a fun story? (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay. So Washington State, recently there was a news article that came out that said Washington State is the first state to legalize composting humans. Ooh. 
Yeah, Rory's face is just terrified. How are they composting humans? Okay, so the body. Oh, this is going to get a little morbid, I guess. It's less fun than I said it was. Yeah. <laughs> Sherry, why? So no, far. No, but I think it's great. I think it's the greatest thing ever. Okay. So the body is covered in uh, natural materials like wood or straw. And over the course about, of about three to seven weeks, um, thanks to uh, microbial activity, it breaks down into soil. So families then can choose how they want to use the soil. So this is an environmentally friendly way of dealing with our bodies once we have passed on. Wait, how long did this, did they say? Three to seven weeks. That sounds too short. It does, doesn't it? But that's what it said. And this sounded like it came from, it came from CNN. So I'm assuming that this is like science. I don't know science, but I'm assuming it's science. Three to seven weeks. It also sounds like it would smell pretty bad. Well, that's the job of the people doing it. You have to pay for it. It's a paid service. So they say that the average burial can cost between 8000 and 25000 So cremation is about 6000 And um, the person who is doing this hopes to charge about 5500 for human composting. And you can take the composting home and put it in your garden. You don't have to worry about the chemicals that you put into the body to, like formaldehyde and stuff like that. You don't have to worry about the um, environmental cost of having a casket, the space we're taking up. I think it's a great idea. Washington State has legalized it, so there must be science behind it. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm still trying to think how would this happen in so such a quick amount of time. I'm thinking if I were to make a hypothesis, they could potentially liquefy the person first. I was wondering that. If they like maybe, oh God, we're getting so morbid. If maybe they find a way to move our bodies into smaller pieces. If it's turning to soil, there wouldn't be any, I'm assuming there's no bones left. So you, if you... Yeah. There's like high pressure, like liquefaction type of technologies for human bodies. It's basically like a, it's not a, like a burning cremation, but it's more of a steam process for cremation. But you could render like a pressure cooker. Uh, yeah, like a fancy pressure cooker that okay. basically liquefies everything. So in theory, you could like liquefy the human body and then decompose it. I think it's great. I want to be compost. That's my goal in life is to be compost. My preference is to be buried, but but this would be kind of a middle ground because I'm thinking like, okay, burial takes a lot of time and space. And environmental destruction, right? The casket, the formaldehyde, stuff like that. Cremation definitely is not that great for no, the environment. No, the chemicals that go into the air. Yeah. I hadn't heard about, tell me more about how cremation is harmful. So the human body, let's say you've lived well past into your 80s. For those 80 years, you have been accumulating carbon, been eating food. The carbon atoms are now part of your body. And then when you just burn your body, now you're just releasing all that carbon back into the atmosphere. Versus the natural method is actually to when, you know, when animals die... When people used to die, you know, you would bury a person, you would put the carbon back into the ground. But cremation, you're putting the carbon back into the atmosphere. So it only contributes to climate change. Never thought of it that way. I just think it's environmentally friendly. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, who knows if it will totally pan out. We'll have to watch Washington to see what happens. But I would love, I would love to be compost. I have more light stories. Oh boy, I'm going to be known on this podcast as like the morbid one. Remember how Ford, our dear leader, canceled the program to plant 50 million trees? Guess what happened yesterday? Guess what happened yesterday? 
So the federal government is putting up $15 million over four years to rescue the 50 million tree program, which was cut. So the program had an annual budget of $4.7 million and had planted more than 27 million trees across the province. So they've been doing this since 2008. And the goal was to have 50 million planted by 2025. Uh, so this new funding is going to support the planting and growth of 10 million trees, bringing the program's total to 37 million. So the issue with planting trees is that we talked about at the lecture, which Amber talked about, is it takes four years for a sapling to get to a point where it's totally independent. We don't need to nurture it, right? So there are all of these saplings that were planted and are growing, but then Ford cut the cut the budget. So the, these nurseries that were growing these these trees didn't know what to do with these these trees. So now it's really great because they are able to put these trees into their proper homes, right? So they're able to plant them and they're able to start new seeds because they have enough funding to kind of get them through this next four-year period. Well, that's good news at least. I know it's actually very encouraging. Even though it was, uh, who thinks it's a good idea just to those stop poor trees. planting those trees, even though the trees are available? What do the trees ever do to Fort? Well, you know. Cruel and arbitrary to cut that kind of program. The question is, do those trees bring business? Because that's all he cares about. Ontario is open for business. Mm, we want to repopulate Ontario with trees. Not, yeah, we don't want to be open for business in our hot tubs. And that was a reference to what the symbol looked like. Everyone was saying it looked like a hot tub. The new symbol that they made. Anyway, uh, so that was a that was a really good story. I think that brings a little bit of hope. I don't know if that was a political ploy because, as we know, Trudeau's up for election re-election potentially in the fall so i don't know if that was his idea of saying hey we are supporting the environment or if they just care about the trees and maybe they just care about the trees and i think that's good i think trees are obviously not enough amber was saying how trees are not enough uh we need to be thinking about more higher lofty goals than just yeah. planting trees i mean trees. there's a lot of uh, systemic changes that we would need to combat climate change you know clearly the populations continue to grow we're not really going to stop population growth and people are going to use more energy. People are driving more cars. So there needs to be a whole system of changes that actually will reduce our carbon emissions. And, you know, planting trees is just not really going to do it. I mean, you're just going to, I don't think we even have enough land or like available land to uh, soak up all the carbon that we have emitted into the atmosphere. So we have to figure out how we're going to incentivize people in making some changes. We need to raise our voices, I think. I think we need to talk to the government. You know who's talking to the government? Going through these stories quick. <laughs> uh, okay, did you hear about the 21 young people who sued the federal government in the States? So they're in order to force action on climate change, they're currently arguing that the that it deprives their right to life, liberty, property, and public trust resources by federal government acts that knowingly destroy danger and impair the unalienable climate system that nature endows that is what specifically it says so they're they're suing the government over climate change certainly wish them well in that endeavor i doubt that's gonna do anything to be honest but it would be nice even if it just drew some attention yes put some pressure on some politicians made people realize hey we can put our voices out there in terms of grabbing attention i think it will be successful in terms of formulating an effective legal challenge through the courts i don't see it having a 
a significant impact, although I, I hope it does, and I wish them the best. Look at these young people, though. They're full of hope. Yes. They're that, doing it. That is inspiring. Just wait until we crush their hopes and dreams in a few years. But now they have hope. Let's give them hope now. I'm proud of them. Go young people. It's not going to last very long. But, <laughs> um, you know, it seems a little bleak right now uh, when I kind of think about the political landscape. So Australia just had their elections and they voted in a government that was a little less concerned about climate change, even though there was a lot of momentum, especially from young people. But same thing that always happens, it always comes down to the fact that young people don't vote. If you're out there, young people, please vote. Yeah, but it does beg the question. I mean, climate change is on, on a lot of people's minds, and especially young people. I still don't quite understand why a lot of young people just do not go out and vote. I don't either. But I think that's maybe because we're very politically motivated people like even as a young person i was politically motivated and my parents taught me to always go and vote and they took me voting with them like even at a young age i learned the importance and how like special it made you know them feel made me feel to go and participate in the process i wonder if young people just aren't getting that that access to it in school are people still taught civics and yeah there's a civics and careers class as there has been for many many years and they're taught they're taught about government structure. Do you think also like young people just don't feel their word has any say or they have no power really? Because throughout school, in reality, when you're a student, you don't really have any power and you don't really realize you have any power until much older. It's interesting because I talk to my students a lot about their political action. Uh, so things like when there was that walkout that happened in the schools, I talked to my kids that day and we talked about like what it means and stuff like that. And lots of kids just walk out because they get to miss class and it's what everyone else is doing. And it seems like the fun thing to do. But there are kids, like there are kids that actually inspire me that like really get into it and really understand what they're talking about. But the question is, are these the majority? No. <laughs> That's the problem, right? I know. I know. And like, I try not to focus on that majority who just are so apathetic and don't care to learn about it. Because there are some people who are really like, you can tell they're going to make a difference in this world. And then there are lots that just don't care just along for the ride i don't know and i try to talk to them i try to convince them to care but like i can't especially at that age they're just not willing to listen we talked a lot about voting in the past and how we think kids should be young people should be motivated to really at the end of the day we need politicians to be able to change the incentives so that we can kind of move towards a direction where we can address climate change because right now if, if the incentives aren't aligned, so for example, the incentives right now for the world is there is no tax on carbon that goes up into the atmosphere. Every other pollutant that goes into our water gets taxed. So if a manufacturer pollutes the water, they either have to pay a surcharge for that water or they pay fines if it goes over a certain limit. So the same thing with air emissions is not there for water pollution. So that's why the incentives just doesn't make any sense. You're polluting the air with carbon dioxide but no one's really paying a price for that so do we think that's that's going to make a difference because canada recently instated a carbon tax and there are a few provinces that are trying to fight it notably ontario and actually i've i've heard rumblings and seen a couple of papers hinting that doug ford's new alternative 
pollution reduction strategy, which is a more targeted strategy as opposed to a, an umbrella strategy from the federal government, would actually be far less economically viable than the plan proposed by our federal government. The carbon tax isn't really, it doesn't really fully align the incentives, right? It, it's kind of moving in the direction. I mean, the cost of carbon is huge. Like it really should be priced pretty high, but we just don't because obviously our uh, political economic systems don't uh, allow that to happen. But this carbon tax is kind of moving in that direction. So the whole point of setting up these incentives is you want to create you want to create innovations and changes in how we live to align ourselves to something a little bit more affordable and cheaper. So um, these incentives are in place so that we can foster innovation. But a obviously, a lot of conservatives don't really look look at it that way. Bringing back my conservative mindset, there are bound to be plenty of uh, citizens who see this as simply a cynical cash grab, a way that they're being fleeced one more time for their extra hard-earned money through this carbon tax that may or may not actually be effective in moving us towards a greener system. The problem is it's very short. I don't want to say it's short-sighted, but it's very short-term. Their, their view of what this carbon tax is is kind of they're looking at it in the next you know, four years. What, how is it really going to impact me? It's going to impact me negatively. But, yeah, I, but as part of the carbon tax, I mean, there's some money coming back to people different parts of the industry, like the uh, fuel industry is being taxed, but some of that money gets returned to citizens. Rebates and, and rebates, such. Yeah. But like, who cares? At the end of the day, if we have an economy and we don't have the environment, like who cares? <laughs> well, uh, I would say the people that don't have to live in the next hundred years, they don't care. Yeah. Right? They should care, though. They should care about the people who come after them. As humanists, we should care about all people who come after us. As humanists, but how many yeah, yeah, yeah. people We're are humanists? Like <laughs> Christians and religious people, they're moving on to heaven. God will save the rest <laughs> of the people. There's no carbon in heaven. I'm very much, in general, on the, the same way of thinking as you, Sherry, that no matter the cost, climate change is something that needs to be addressed and needs to be really at the forefront of our political discourse and the fact that it's not is truly disconcerting and I'm not quite sure how to change that. I think we should all be ready to make sacrifices, like truly make sacrifices. Really sit down with yourself and say, okay, what can I change? Am I taking a vacation a year on a plane? Am I using plastic bags every time I go to the grocery store? Like finding yeah, ways. I honestly don't think that's going to fly with people. Like people do not want to change our lifestyle so i think we need to though I, I, but this is where i think we need to move towards changing the incentives like the whole you don't you don't want to change people's lifestyles because they're progress from cave, being cave people all the way to civilized society like people don't want to let that go and like regress back to more inconvenience or things like that like you would i don't think the normal citizen would want to do that or would vote for that. So uh, this is where, for me, I think innovation and technology and uh, innovation in how we set up the incentives and business models can really help move us in the right direction and also help kind of take the carbon out of the atmosphere, essentially. To have an effective top-down strategy, which I feel like is the approach you're favoring, we need a, a very strong leader and someone we yes, believe in. we do to achieve that sort of thing. Exactly. But and then this comes back to the problem of democracy. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I understand your point. I understand saying to people, hey, you're doing wrong things makes people get defensive and then they just keep doing the wrong things or they do more wrong things. So I understand pointing at people and saying, hey, you need to change is not necessarily effective. And then the question is, what is effective? What narrative can we take to convince people? So if it's not the narrative of change your lifestyle, like what narrative should we be trying to be using? You're going to lose your home. You're going to lose your money. Do we talk about losses? Is that the idea? Threats that of consequences aren't overly effective. Because people don't see, like it's such a, it's such an overreaching issue that I think people don't understand how it affects them until it actually does, until we're too late. And we probably are already too late. I think we're 10 years too late, to be honest. But I feel like, I mean, again, like going back to the top-down approach, as you kind of think back, you know, in the 70s, uh, because I work in the water industry, I kind of know the history of water regulations. Like there was a top-down approach in terms of water pollution, and there were fines and taxes just thrown onto industries. And there didn't seem to be that much pushback from people. I mean, obviously, industry pushed back, but normal citizens didn't because they wanted clean water. So the question of how do you have the same effect of in the 70s when all these regulations were put into place and caused prices to go up, but people wanted it because they got clean water. Is it because my hypothesis, one of the reasons is because when you see water pollution, you can see it, you can taste it, you can feel it. But when it comes to carbon, you can't really see carbon emissions. You can't smell it. Not without taking a walk down a busy street. Then you'll definitely uh, feel the impact. Of Going to China, looking in that air. Smog-filled cities will definitely turn people's heads, but how many of us live in a smog-filled city? Yeah, it's minority, yeah. Here in Canada, we still have a good amount of space, and I don't know if we have any major cities that are truly dealing with smog issues. Certainly not the way they Los are. Los Angeles did. But that's why Los Angeles led the world in getting electric cars and things like that. And that kind of lends some credence to the idea that it is when it starts becoming a visible, tangible thing that's affecting people's lives, then people are spiked and spurred into action. But until that time, it just seems like as a species, we're letting, willing to let things slide. I think given the choice, we would all prefer to have an electric car versus what we have now. It's the issue of we're not, you're right, we're not spurring it on. We're not really raising our voices and insisting that electric cars become cheaper, more affordable. We're not putting our money into that research. Well, it's trusted to a, a complex economic system where we already have the infrastructure in place and the number of fossil fuel driven cars in place that it's very cheap to continue mass producing those types of cars, whereas a new industry has the founder of Tesla is finding out it's very difficult to to build that up to a level where you can offer cheaper prices and touch exactly consumers. I mean think think about how long has cars existed like almost a century like a century worth of uh, innovation and deployment of infrastructure that revolve around gasoline cars you have to duplicate that on the electric side as quickly as you can and and we don't have a century to build it companies like Tesla, they have to, they're just constantly trying to move as fast as possible because they're trying to catch up to the gasoline world. And I wonder if we're going that way now, because for a while there, we were all about self-driving cars and AI and stuff like that. But I think recently I saw an advertisement, which is very unusual for me because I don't watch a lot of TV with advertisements, but I saw an advertisement for, I think it was Honda or something like that, that has just come out with a new electric car and they're very excited about it. It was a wonderfully done advertisement. They were excited about it too, it seemed. And yeah, I wonder if, I wonder if now, because Every day I feel like I see news stories about the environment in the news. 
I wonder if now it's more of a trend to be environmentally conscious. So I wonder if we're going in that direction more now. I think we also have to, going back to trying to incentivize people, you know, what Tesla did right was they didn't just build an electric car, they built a performance car. That was really their selling point. They didn't really care too much about the electric part of it. They built a performance car that was faster than gasoline cars, had significantly more cool technology in it, had self-driving capabilities. Like they had everything someone wanted in the car and they put put it into the car as a uh, as a value proposition for customers. And that's why they kind of gained so much popularity because it wasn't positioned as, hey, come buy this car and save the environment. No, buy this car because it beats every other gasoline car in the market. And that's why Audi's doing the same thing. They're starting to build electric cars, focusing on speed, how fast it is, how safe it is, how much automation it has. Like this is where now you're having the right a set of technologies and value propositions in place that you are now starting to become competitive against gasoline cars. And this will only force gasoline cars to respond. At a certain time, you can't get a really good basically like every if every electric car was super amazing people are just going to keep buying electric cars they're not going to buy gasoline cars anymore so they're trying to sneak it in there now they're like look at this awesome performance car and it's electric exactly that, that, that but that's what you need for any type of adoption of technology i mean people aren't going to again going back to lifestyle right people don't want to change their lifestyle or make it worse, they want to make it better. It has to seem like it was their idea. Yes. You've tapped into a market that they desire to be a part of. My only fear is that we're not operating with a long enough time scale to truly let the market guide us in the correct direction. Correct. I mean, uh, but I think we also really think about there are larger sources of uh, carbon out there. It's not just cars. There's, you know, shipping vehicles, there's power generation. So there's a lot of big contributors to carbon uh, dioxide beyond just cars. I know that you had a an interesting bit of research on nuclear energy as opposed to yeah, our no, fossil fuels. No. Uh, for me, I've always, not always, but definitely uh, recently have been kind of a fan of nuclear technology as a stepping stone for our conversion towards uh, renewables. So the, the vast majority of uh, power generation in emerging countries like India and China currently are, are uh, coal power plants. And Coal is just the worst. It is you're you're putting in uh, carbon into the atmosphere. You're putting uh, lots of particulates into the atmosphere, and you're also putting radioactive elements into the atmosphere. This as I well. had no idea about. Yeah, it's really interesting because when you kind of think about coal, you don't really think of it as a radioactive element, but there's a lot of radioactive elements in coal that get aerosolized if once you burn it. So really, if you're really like anti-nuclear you really should be against coal power plants and you should also be against smoking as well because actually smoking builds up a lot of radioactive elements in people's lungs and especially if you also breathe it in second hand just stop burning things people exactly. <laughs> combustion is like the worst <laughs> so given the fact that you know coal is so bad the rate in which we're able to install renewables is really pretty slow i mean no matter if we put you know all of our efforts into trying to build solar panels it means we're doing silicon mining we're it will just take us a long time essentially to kind of build up enough renewable capacity to replace what we currently have but nuclear is kind of the next best option nuclear 
has virtually no carbon emissions. And from a safety perspective, it is actually the safest option, uh, not including the renewables, but it's the safest option compared to every other power generation, power generating method. So when you think about coal, almost uh, 9 million people die every year from air pollution, from coal power plants. So when you kind of think about how many deaths that there's been for nuclear, really, there's been 45 deaths in, in any type of nuclear accident. And really... I feel like we can name all of them too. Like when you can't name all the people who died from coal or whatever, any coal disasters, all, but you can name... Yeah, all the deaths are essentially Chernobyl. That's yeah, and Fukushima, right? Uh, or no, that no, would have injuries. been from the tsunami, uh, right? Tsunamis, yeah. With, tsunami death. So yeah. here's an interesting fact as well. So did you guys know that bananas are radioactive? Say it isn't so. I love bananas. Yeah, so bananas are radioactive. There's actually like a lot of things around us that are radioactive. Uh, bananas are radioactive. The earth is radioactive. I saw a recent uh, study where they actually calculated the exposure, the lifetime exposure of the people in Fukushima from radiation. The lifetime exposure is actually less than a single CT scan and less than an astronaut going to space. I'm shocked because you'd think that that was a huge disaster. We were talking about that and, you know, in the news all the time and about how, how devastating it was. And how and noble how... it was for the people who were contributing to the cleanup. It felt like they were yeah. sacrificing themselves yeah. to be a part but, of that. And all of it was going into the water. Yeah. It is a bad disaster. You don't want this reactive element anywhere. And they're doing a lot of, uh, they're spending a lot of effort on kind of doing all the cleanup and things like that. But I think from a scale perspective, it's interesting to kind of just put it in, in terms of how much impact it actually has versus what the media is portraying this accident to be. So I think there's a bit of a disconnect and people don't quite understand radiation. And over the decades, media has kind of positioned radiation as just this evil thing that any exposure is bad. You know, any exposure means you're dead or getting cancer. But there's just if people kind of fully realize how much radiation they get exposed every day, it kind of puts it into perspective of what how dangerous uh, some of these events actually actually are to human beings. I think but, the best question though is like, where does that radiation or that nuclear waste go? What do we do with it? We so, can't just put it in yeah. the ground and bury it right yeah, like I mean, the current option right now is to bury it but there are technologies out there uh, where we could potentially reutilize that waste to create energy again because right now when you think about our current nuclear technology these are technologies that are 50 years old that are designed back in the 50s and the 60s and just because of the amount of fear for nuclear power, no one has really kind of invested. We know how to uh, build nuclear reactors that can't melt down. We know how to build reactors that can utilize uh, existing nuclear waste. And we know how to build reactors that can take nuclear weapons and turn into energy. Like we have all this knowledge and this capability, but we just haven't really invested in it because there's so much fear about nuclear power. So It's interesting that we haven't because there are still nuclear power plants that are in use not quite as many but like there are still some people like bill gates on with the bill and melinda gates foundation they're investing in uh in nuclear research because they see that you know on top of curing malaria they see nuclear energy as a great stepping stone to help solve uh, the climate change issue for me you know nuclear is not the the boogeyman it's not the boogeyman but it's also not the the North Star that we should be striving for, right? It's 
we, we know renewables is where we want to go. But really, you know, if we truly believe climate change is urgent, that we got to solve it today, nuclear is a pretty good option to get us there. Transitional period option. Yeah. I totally agree. So how much, can you enlighten us how much waste is produced? All of the waste in, uh, I believe in the U.S. I got to double check. It's either the U.S. or the world. But basically, uh, let's assume it's the U.S. because it's smaller geography. But all that waste can fit in single football field. So for the past century, the amount of waste that we've actually produced can just fit in a football field. For 100 oh. years. Okay. Yeah. So and then when you kind of think about uh, for a single person, so the amount of nuclear waste uh, that's produced to support uh, human beings use of electricity for their entire life is basically the size of a Coke, uh, Coke can. So it's pretty small. Uh, because the energy density for nuclear power is just so high. Do we have space for 7 billion Coke cans? Oh, we definitely do. Okay. <laughs> we definitely I guess do. we do. I don't know. Think of how many Cokes are sold each <laughs> <Again>. day. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. I hear you on this. But it's not something that you know we're, we should be striving for and saying this is the permanent solution because really at the end of the day, Nuclear power is also not renewable. I mean, there is a finite amount of uh, uranium uh, uranium in the, on the planet. So, Do you think humans get complacent, though? And as soon as we have that fix of nuclear energy, we're going to be like, oh, we did it. Time to go back to our Problem lives. solved. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see, just see a mission accomplished banner <laughs> in the background. <laughs> mission accomplished. No collusion. <laughs> Well, I I hope not. I mean, I hope people, we can be smart enough to realize that solar is definitely the way to go, uh, wind is the way to go, and nuclear is just kind of that stepping stone for us. Uh, but oh, for me, you know, I'm trying to be optimistic as well, but there is a lot of research on like fusion reactors as well. So um, there is a fusion uh, plant that's being built, I believe it's in France, it's called the ITAR system. So they're essentially trying to create a, a star on planet Earth. So with fusion technology, let's assume in 100 years, if we get something like that, that's a pretty good replacement for nuclear. I mean, you're pretty much producing energy, but without the radioactive byproducts. So. Yeah, I think the only risk to people accepting this, well, I mean, not only because we've talked about the other ones, but I think one of the other big risks is people worried about the coal jobs. Where are the coal people going to go? And that's that's not as much of a an argument in Canada, but I remember when Trump was doing his campaigning, he's still campaigning, but when he was originally doing his campaigning, he was talking, saying like, we're going to get those coal jobs back. We're going to reinvigorate these communities with coal. But the, the strange thing about that situation is no matter what he does, coal jobs are not coming back because guess what is the cheaper method of producing power? natural gas but people are going to feel there's they feel slighted now they're going to keep feeling slighted it's going to keep you know escalating this feeling of being slighted by the government losing their job like we really need to really systematically change things if we're going to change things so changing to make sure that those people who don't have coal jobs anymore get moved into and trained into energy jobs like clean energy jobs and you know clean energy jobs are the fastest growing job segment 
in at least in the energy uh, world right now. So there are jobs out there. Like if, if there's any job in the energy space that's growing the fastest, it's all renewable. It's not coal. It's not natural gas. Unfortunately, as usual, Trump doesn't know what he's talking about. Surprise. I'm so surprised. You've just shocked all of our listeners. I'm, I'm just shocked. <laughs> he has the biggest brain. Remember. He's learned how to... A stable genius, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> He's learned how to comb over that hair so it looks like regular hair. I think that is genius. I think I make an actual point there. <laughs> I think someone it's maybe... to get convinced. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was a hairdresser who did that. So maybe we were giving the genius to the wrong source here. So anyways, that's, that's my stance on nuclear and why I think it's... Amazing. I think I think you might be right. You've convinced me on this short-term solution. I think that may be the way to go short-term. Really, at the end of the day, we need the political will to do anything, whether it's nuclear, renewables, solving climate change in general. Even to, if we could get a few municipalities where it was just a total clean air bill was put in place where... No one is allowed to drive a, a gas car. I have no idea if this would be viable or possible, but if we could find some way to lead by example and inspire people in this direction that we know we need to go. Taking things away, though, is not inspiring them in the right direction. You would be voted out of the <laughs> office. I know. Rory for not president. <laughs> yeah, well, anyways, it's a complicated issue. I, I don't think we have all the right solutions, but... Nobody has the right solutions right now. That's kind of why it feels very depressing. We just need a solution, and then people will be happy with it again, and we'll say, yeah, we can do this. But right now, it just feels like we can't. I read an article the other day uh, about how Canada is warming twice as fast, and in the title it said, effectively irreversible, <laughs> quotations around that, as the rest of the world. So... You know, we kind of feel like there's nothing we can do. And I found really interesting what Amber talked about was how even if we get to net zero, the earth is going to still be heating up because we started the ball rolling and we can't just stop the ball. We have to like slow it down slowly, which is why I think we're 10 years too late because we should have been stopping it long ago. But we can't go down that road. We can't continue thinking that way or else there will be plenty of people who will jump right off and say, well, the ball's rolling. I'm not going to stop it. So why don't I just live as self-indulgently as I possibly can because I want to get the most out of the time that this planet has left. I hope you're telling your kids this because um, yep. I'm not, I'm not going to be around when you know, the <laughs> hits the fan. So. <laughs> Uh, I think I've got a lot of kids who understand that the earth is, is the balls rolling, but it is that feeling of, like, I feel it. I feel like the ball is rolling and there's not much we can do, but I'm, I still want to do something. I still want to try. I haven't fully given up. Good. You seize on that moment. And I think that is a much more positive direction for us to reinforce. First and foremost, I think the political direction is the most important. We need to find a way to elect strong leaders into office who have a climate plan and are willing to see it through competently and confidently. And But at the individual day-to-day level, just people should not feel, they should feel a sense of pride in whatever way they're able to reduce their own emissions and help the problem. And understand that one person does make a difference. Even if you just cut out using plastic bags from your daily life, like that does make a difference. 
Because you can convince other people to do it as well. And then you're not the only person who's doing it. So if everyone decided to do one thing, we could really, I feel like, make a difference. So inspiring. I feel like an advertisement. So inspiring. (laughs) I am am a motivational speaker now. (laughs) I'm talking about how we can make a difference. Well, that's all for me. Oh, we got to leave on hope. Trying so hard to move us in that hopeful direction. That's why I was just giving you that. Oh, I know. Do the good things. (laughs) Well. We can be hopeful. We can try our best. <laughs> I think that, I, you know what? Okay, here's an idea. Here's an idea. So us right now, us three, we are going to make a pact to do one thing to change in our lives that would help the environment. What one thing are you going to do? I am going to try not to use plastic bags at the grocery store. That is one big one that I'm really trying to get my head around doing. Careful. This also includes those little plastic bags that you put your fruits oh. and vegetables no, in. No, no, no. I'm not Don't talking use about those that. Either. I'm, maybe no, I'm no. being too general in this. <laughs> but like when I go to bag my groceries, I'm going to try and bring my tote bags with me. You know, it's not actually that big a deal. I always used to be that person who I'm getting some apples. I throw all the apples in the little plastic bag that they have there. You don't have to do that. And it's not like you're not going to wash your fruits and your vegetables when you get home anyway. So just don't take those little plastic bags. Don't take any plastic bags. It's it's something we have to train ourselves through because the habit exists and it needs to be broken. But it can be broken. Yeah, you're right. When I go to the butcher, I'm going to just give me that slab of meat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to carry it home with my bare hands gonna, like the man I am. <laughs> I'm going to just drop it on. Being <laughs> the vegetarian, I, I can't really... Uh, sympathize with that but i think you might be able to bring your own transportation for the for your meat product and there are now grocery stores that are completely um garbage free or whatever um my friend was telling me about how he goes to the grocery store he weighs all of his containers and yeah it takes a bit more effort but he weighs his containers and then he puts the food in and then he weighs the food in total and it'll it'll calculate how much the actual food is so there are places you can go there's more places now it's getting more trendy which is great but i think that is going to be my goal i'm going to try to reduce my my plastic impact now you go well i will walk to places more so if it's uh to my neighborhood drugstore or uh, grocery store i will i will walk to it versus is that going to, to last it. until november when the snow it hits will, it will last until the <laughs> weather turns awful <laughs> listen you can't expect the canadian <laughs> to be walking around in a snowstorm i will commit to similar things to both of you Plastic is right out of my life. I think I can confidently do that. Aside from certain items that are sold in plastic, which I will try to avoid, but it's some consumable that I want. I can't really help it. And I will put the added amendment of, yes, I will walk places I need to go, but if public transit is going there anyway, I'm willing to take that bus. That's fossil fuels being burnt, you know. (laughs) Fossil fuels that are going to be burned one way or another. Unless we all stop using the bus. And then they're not well, going to... <laughs> we need electric buses. We do. So I agree. We could build up that infrastructure and have streetcars that run on electric... Actually, you know what we really need? We need electric high-speed trains. What the hell's wrong with Ontario? I know, right? Yeah, connecting cities for sure. I absolutely Every agree Every city that. in Asia has amazing electric trains. Yes. High-speed. And how are we electric. falling so far behind on this? Yeah. 
it, it's crazy. Even even China, come on, China, in the middle of nowhere, you can get access to electric trains. And yeah. this is something the citizenry is crying for. Everybody wants rail connection, high-speed trains connecting the city. And it's great. Like, I've been on trains from Shanghai to, like, neighboring cities. It's great. You can get, like, a meal and just, yeah. like, sit and relax. I've been on the electric train, uh, sorry, the high-speed electric trains in Korea and Japan, and they're amazing. You get there so quickly, and you don't even notice that you're moving. Like, I usually get motion sickness, but I don't get motion sick. It's wonderful. We need these technologies in Canada. Yeah, so another commitment. We'll bug our politicians for this. Bug our politicians I, to get I've new done technology. That already. I've, like, tweeted at politicians. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, because, because when Ontario announced their electric train, I was complaining. I was furious that number one we are getting like some of the slowest electric trains in the world and they're like this is crazy why are we spending so much money on slow trains when everyone else in the world has like these super fast trains and no one's going to use them when they're slow exactly yeah why if you're going to make a product that's so bad <laughs> no one's going to use it i have one more thing that we can do collectively as a group okay and i think we're i think it's going to be an easy one don't vote conservative <laughs> in the federal. Don't do it. Oh, Don't do that it. hurts, but I'm a conservative at heart. <laughs> Get out of here, Kenny. You are kicked out of our podcasting group. <laughs> but I understand. I... You didn't know, Kenny. I was your replacement all along. <laughs> Little does anyone know, you guys won't be able to use the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> you make a point. <laughs> We'll Why did we you. consider this yeah. journey? But we're going to work on you so you I'm don't just, vote conservative. I'm, I'm just trying to be the conservative voice on this call. But, but in reality, I'm, I'm more center. I'm more center. That's how I usually describe Good. myself. Stay that way. Don't go to the right. Don't yeah. go to the dark side. I, I like being center, neutral, and try to take the, take the perspective of, I will listen to both sides and make a decision. Well, don't listen to the conservatives anymore. Just listen to like the liberals and the NDP slash Green Party. That's where the right and left really should be. That's because if we're being side. honest, the liberals are the right. And if we're being honest, the NDP is the left. The conservatives are just so far out to the right. I don't even know how they have a base. If we have anyone listening from other parts of Canada, look at what Ontario has done to itself by voting in Ford. And don't do it don't even like entertain the unless, thought unless you want a buck of beer oh god okay i think we better wrap this up so pride is coming up july 28th we are going to be walking in the pride parade set the date in your calendar it starts at 12 o'clock and we leave from the parade grounds so we'll have lots of information on our website so check that out please come walk with us we'd love to have you all humanists are welcome so come on out and join us for that. Yay. Pride. Yay. Pride. Well, that's it for our episode. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Please visit our website at humanistagenda.com, and we will see you guys next time. Set a goal and do it. Stay in the hope zone. Stay in the hope zone. See ya. Okay, bye. 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 Your only qualifications is you are her friend. <laughs> <laughs> See why I'm saying we may need to record that. <laughs>
I think it's perfect. No, it's fine. Okay.